the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. After the disappointments of COP27, and let's face it, there was a lot to be disappointed about, attention now turns to what the International Maritime Organisation can achieve by way of a solid climate strategy for shipping. Between here and June next year, the revision of shipping's current measly 50% greenhouse emissions reductions target aimed at 2050 will be upped to something closer to zero by 2050. But you will be unsurprised to hear that there is a fair bit of detail to get to before Greta Thunberg sets sail for Albert's embankment to check out whether this manages to go beyond the blah blah blah. The details of that zero, assuming it ever emerges, is what matters. And without wishing to overstate the case this early in the podcast, it will determine the future of the industry. So, no pressure. What happens in the IMO matters because the detail determines whether this works or whether this becomes a leaky offsetting exercise. I'm not pointing fingers aviation, but it's fair to say that we don't have too much competition in the transport sector right now. Part of the reason everyone is currently criticising CII, the Carbon Intensity Indicator regulations about to enter into force with an enforcement regime featuring teeth made from jelly, is because the underlying agreements within the IMO were so weak. This is what it was all based on. If we are going to get to the next phase of shipping's climate strategy, and we are going to get it right, we need to be sure that the detail is robust. For that to happen, the right discussions needed to have happened at COP, and then they need to be translated into the IMO. So, That's why I'm doing a slightly delayed review of what happened at COP27 this week, with a focus as to what happens next going forward into the IMO meetings. Bear with me, it should all make sense. Not least because I have drafted in an international team of talent to explain it to you all this week. So let's start with some positives, because trust me here, there are some reasons to be cheerful. The conversations at COP this year were less siloed and more focused on shipping's position within the wider energy system shift. Now, that may not sound like an extraordinary piece of progress, but trust me, it marks a real shift in the nature of the conversations that are at least now happening in the right places. Catherine Palmer, shipping's lead UN climate champion, was out in Sharm el-Sheikh for the duration of the discussions, and she'll be back in the IMO next month trying to translate that into action. She believes that real progress was made, and actually shipping's position within the wider global discussions are now crucial. The way I would put it is that everyone was talking about shipping. This wasn't just, you know, shipping talking about shipping. And, you know, world leaders were now citing the maritime sector in their statements, as well as, you know, so many countries, you know, entrepreneurs, innovators, you know, in, in other sectors, you know, just talking about the fact that, you know, we do need to, to decarbonize the maritime sector. And I think what what it quite clearly shows is the sector has a real opportunity here. The fact that the interconnectedness of of shipping with oceans, energy, finance, resilience, you know, it really is about looking at the entire sort of maritime system and saying these touch points means that it's a real opportunity to be a source of climate solution. And and I would say that is the kind of message that came across when we look at the um, the progress that's been made, not only the what the sector could demonstrate as progress since COP26, but the fact that other sectors were now sort of looking 
to shipping to help them with their goals as well. So, so I think um, for me, it was, I think it was beyond expectation. I think, you know, our narrative going into shipping and our message going there, uh, going into COP, our, our message was quite clearly, you know, progress is happening. It is possible. Um, but we do need to, you know, we can't stay within 1.5 without decarbonizing shipping. And we need to put shipping on a 1.5 aligned trajectory. And by doing that, it helps unlock wider resilience benefits for coastal communities, cities and, and countries. And I think that message clearly landed and clearly resonated, you know, whether it was across African nations, whether it was across the climate vulnerable communities, you know, and whether it was the energy across the energy sector or the, the ocean actors, you know, that message has, has kind of landed and the opportunity for shipping is is now. You know, it's not in six months time, eight months time. I think the opportunity is is now and we've got to kind of seize that that opportunity that we've created for ourselves. So that visibility matters, but it's not just a case of being seen. Part of the issue that shipping has had in these supranational discussions is that it has tended to be seen as part of the problem, an issue that needs to be abated. The conversations now are about how shipping fits into a wider energy transition, how it can be part of an energy offtake agreement that can catalyse the whole energy system's change. Johanna Christensen, the chief executive of the Global Maritime Forum, was also out there in COP, and she thinks that the nature of the conversation has finally shifted. Shipping has demonstrated that, it's, um, that it has a really clear view on what shipping's transition can look like and must look like, and so has a sort of a an eye on the path to um, um, to align with a one point five degree pathway, um, and but to do so, it needs to work with other parts of the global ecosystem, be that as. Uh, Catherine says other sectors, or be that uh, communities and the like. So it's it, it's a sort of a whole system transformation, and so um, from that point of view, because shipping has this kind of clear pathway and clear view on that pathway, and knows what the next steps are and what steps need to be taken, um, it's also in a really good position to actually take those steps and to move forward and to act on that. Um, it's also a sector that's demonstrating real progress. I mean, I, I think we saw that, for example, in the context of the Clyde Bank Declaration, which was launched a year ago in, in Glasgow. And uh, uh, my colleagues uh, put together a progress report on green shipping corridors, sort of one year on, you know, what's happened. And we can see that there's been this tremendous progress. There's um, more than 20 green quarter consortia that are announced and under development and many more on the way. Uh, we can see the real impacts of that already happening, right? So the, so it, 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 there's this, it's a combination of it plays its integral role in uh, systems transformation and it has a view on how the transformation needs to happen and we can already see the concrete first steps taking place. So from that point of view, that's, that's, that's the element that makes me optimistic. Attention now turns to what the IMO can deliver within the next two sessions of its Marine Environment Protection Committee, MEPC to those in the know. 
Between here and June next year, the expectation is that the target will be upped to zero by 2050. The only real question for those following the debate is how come it took us so long to get there? It's rare that any industry positively demands further and faster action than its regulators, but it's one of the interesting nuances of the debate right now that it's the big-name shipowners themselves that are at the forefront of the clamour for tougher controls. Here's Guy Platten, Secretary-General of the International Chamber of Shipping. Getting that message out there that it, shipping is the enabler of decarbonisation as well as being having to decarbonise ourselves, I think that message is definitely cutting through now, is that, you know, without shipping, you're going to struggle in lots of the others because, you know, if you're going to produce these clean fuels in places which uh, want to export them to those who need them, then almost certainly you're going to need ships to do that. So I think that that message certainly getting through as well, um, the, the importance of, of shipping. Certainly this time around speaking to governments, you felt there was more awareness of shipping than there was the previous year. So I think you're right. It was it was awareness building, demand signaling, as you say. And now it's then seeing what we can kind of translate through the IMO intersessional working group for the MEPCs. Now it's what we're trying to do there. It's, it's we want to move the agenda forward. Industry wants things to happen now. That's very clear. And getting that message to governments, I, I spent some time speaking to John Kerry's deputy from the US delegation. She was very interested in the various proposals we put forward and making that plea, you know, we need to get, you know, let's not make perfection the enemy of good. We need to move forward now um, uh, because shipping wants it. And, for you know, I, I keep always cast my mind back to that conference that was held in Glasgow when a ship owner said we want regulation um, and, and we need IMO to deliver. If this is all sounding a little too rosy for you, don't worry, there's a but coming. Several, in fact. Professor Alice Larkin is the author behind a report that was published during COP. It highlighted the major role that the shipping sector will play in transporting the green fuels necessary to meet global climate change goals. But it also found a yawning gap between the announced government-led projects and what is actually required. The world needs 50 to 150 million tonnes of low-carbon hydrogen by 2030. But even if you take into account everything that's been announced, uh, we're only approaching somewhere near 24 million tonnes. And even more worrying, only 4% of these projects have actually got final investment decisions. Unsurprisingly, Professor Larkin's report is calling for the creation of far stronger national policies on low-carbon fuels. Yeah, so there's going to be lots of change for shipping. So shipping is going to be transporting different fuels in different quantities between different countries if we actually achieve this one and a half degree target, because uh, there is such significant change to the energy system. Um, but shipping is, as you say, has to be part of the solution to achieving that. And you need this massive ramp up of um, low carbon fuels, massive ramp up of renewables. And there's, a, you know, there's a whole bigger picture here as well about the amount of electrification and renewables that that leads to the big reductions in fossil fuels. But equally, there's this important ramp up of hydrogen based fuels and bioenergy, sustainable bioenergy. I mean, and that, you know, I'm not saying that lightly at all, because that is a massive challenge as to how you actually do that sustainably. But once you have this massive ramp up or you need that massive ramp up to deliver one and a half degrees you need to think well you know how near are we to that and how you know what are the quantities of these fuels that are, are planned are already committed to and what the report focuses on is actually that there is you know very limited 
um, sort of policy drive investment and so on, particularly on that on the hydrogen based fuels. And there's a massive gap between what we actually need in these 1.5 degree scenarios, even by just 2030, compared with where we are at the moment. And when you have a gap like that, you know, part of it is because there are, you know, consumers are not are not convinced that there's going to be supply and the, the producers are not convinced that there's going to be a market. And if you're going to be investing in infrastructure to actually support that, you know, from a shipping point of view, bunkering infrastructure and so on, you know, you need that confidence that there are going to be both consumers and producers connected together sufficiently such that it's worth investing. And so it's highlighting that there is not that uh, sufficient policy drive at the moment where there is, you know, sort of bilateral arrangements or, you know, various sort of contracts that, that uh, give that confidence that there are going to be consumers producers connected together sufficient that we need significant transport and investment therefore in the right kinds of ships um to to actually get that whole system moving um so that's what you know that the hi highlighting this gap is really what what the report is doing and you know postulating some of the potential um policy mechanisms that are sort of emerging very rapidly particularly around hydrogen so you know we are seeing um you know, some some parts of the world, some countries, organisations um, starting to develop these policies. And these are the kinds of things that are, that are needed. And so this sort of uh, clean energy marine hub sort of uh, idea where you're really connecting the energy, uh, energy, big energy players um, and those who are going to be involved in the, the upscaling of those those fuels uh, with the shipping uh, stakeholders to make sure that those policy frameworks, when they are developed, are, are sort of keeping in mind the producers, the consumers, but also the you know the shipping industry that needs to to be the, that that significant uh, connection point to help make sure that we get those low carbon fuels flowing in the right places. But how does all this translate into the IMO? Well, one of the only real successes during COP was the creation of what's called a loss and damage fund, which was a significant step forward in terms of unblocking a key part of the United Nations climate response. The fact that wealthy countries are beginning to give a more sympathetic hearing to demands from poorer ones for money to help repair the damages, that is going to have a direct bearing on parallel debates that are happening within the IMO. Simon Berghoff, the Regulatory Affairs Director at the Danish shipping group Maersk, explains why. This was a pretty big step forward. Um, and if we can translate that momentum into, into the MEPC, uh, meeting of December, that would be a, that that would be very good for for progress at IMO because we need the developing nations and the small island states to support uh, a global GHG price, and we're only going to get that support if if we also accept that quite a big chunk, if not the majority of the of the funds that are raised there, go to these nations, and and frankly, as a mask, we believe that. That that is the right way to go. We also believe that the the that the funds can go to adaptation, that it can go to uh, green transition. It doesn't need to go to the shipping sector per se. Mm. Uh, it it can go to these countries for their transition and what they need right now to protect themselves from the effects of climate change. That is the most important element. If that guarantees us to progress on a global GHG price, then the COP will 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 definitely have delivered something that's that's. It's very positive for the IMO. While the amount and end purpose of any such funds are likely to still prove pretty contentious within the IMO, the mere fact that COP27 managed to secure a loss and damage agreement marks a real turning point in this debate. 
there are still voices within the industry who want to see any funds raised ring fence for shipping. But I would say that's looking increasingly unlikely, given the direction of the debate that we've seen in COP27. That's now going to inform government thinking within the IMO, and we need to pay attention to that. I, I also think that's a very last century approach to things, if I can be very honest. Um, this, is, this is not about getting some funding. And we see the same at EU level, right? We see the parallel tracks there. Um, it's not about getting, getting some funding for a retrofit of a propeller. Or a new, it, it, we're talking about a transition of a whole sector. Mm. Really, what we need is to lower the OPEX. The CAPEX we can take care of. I mean, that's our job. That's what we do. The OPEX is what we need to look at. So lower the cost of green electricity, lower the cost of green hydrogen, make sure that we have it in specific places around the world and making sure that we bridge that gap, that we, that we bridge the gap between renewable fuels and fossil fuels. We can only do that through a combination of measures, including a carbon price. And if we need that price to be adopted, we need the support of developing nations and, and small island states. Mm. So that's the price to pay. And it's fair. It's a fair price to pay. Right? And we don't need the IMO to uh, uh, you know, hire 200 people to take care of how that money is reimbursed. We have a whole structure outside the IMO that can take care of that. Be it the World Bank or be it on the UNFCCC system. I mean, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. It, it exists. So, so I, I mean, the ho- my hope is really that, that, that we move away from this ring fencing discussion because it's not very constructive. The priority for most ship owners looking to get ahead of the energy transition is to bridge that gap between the price of renewable fuels and fossil fuels and ensure availability. That requires a complex matrix of regulatory levers to be pulled at a supranational level, hence the COP27 discussions. But it also, as Simon points out, requires a carbon price that shipping can plan for. Carbon pricing alone, however, is not going to be sufficient if the IMO cannot simultaneously adopt a sufficiently robust and detailed revision of its mid-term climate plan by next year. The IMO is widely expected to increase its climate targets from the current ambition to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 50% by 2050 and carbon intensity of all ships by 40% by 2030. That detail of what the increased ambition looks like, however, is the key to understanding how carbon pricing could be adopted. Here's Tristan Smith, the Associate Professor in Energy and Transport at University College London, explaining it during a Lawyers Register webinar earlier this week. The biggest request that I hear is, uh, we just need the IMO to adopt carbon pricing. And then we'll be able to have a business case and we'll be able to make investments in the decarbonisation pathway. Well, you know, unless you have a a 1.5 aligned set of numbers in the revision of the strategy, particularly in the level of ambition, then the IMO may well adopt carbon pricing, but it'll adopt it without the stringency that you need to justify your business case, to justify your investment. So you'll you'll eventually see in 25, 26, the policy appear, but it'll be at a carbon price of $20 or $30. So what you need if you want the business case is actually the revision of the strategy. And it's the revision of the strategy that gives you all of the logic that the IMO then applies when it implements policy and it designs policy from both the stringency perspective and the enforcement perspective. And it was the incredibly weak 2030 carbon intensity target, the 40% improvement on 2008, 
that gave us the weak outcome on CII and EEXI, which I, which is frustrating many people because it doesn't create the business case for the steps they want to take and annoying other people who find the policy you know, complicated and un unhelpful in different ways. Now, those problems could have been fixed if we'd had a better number for what we needed to actually achieve as a material change by 2030. So what we really need to do is use this opportunity to get those numbers right. There are two extremes of the pathways. We can either hold emissions approximately constant for the remainder of this decade, but if we do that, we'll then need to go to zero emissions overnight in the 2030s. We'll need to undertake this very rapid uh, and, as has been pointed out here, tran uh, disruptive transition um, and, and invariably an inequitable transition because those who are who have deeper pockets will be better able to survive that disruption. Um, and then the alternative is to is to start emission reduction achieve a decent amount by 2030, lock in, really drive the efficiency opportunities in the sector, which is still not being exploited, and then uh, make sure that we're starting the long run investment, uh, sorry, the investment in the long run solutions now, so that they're evolving and ramping up, ready to really rapidly unfold as we go into the 2030s. So that's the pathway that we've identified has got a lower cost and a, a least level of disruption. Um, but it does involve us making these ambitious numbers of, of a material greenhouse gas reduction in 2030. I don't know exactly where we're going to land. 2030, 40% um, is, is the absolute reduction that is a minimum. Ideally, we would be up at the 50% end, but it's very hard to see how we how we achieve that with the options that we have on the table at this point. And then depending on how much we do in 2030, somewhere between 80 and 100% in 2040. Obviously the less we do by 2030, the more we have to do by 2040. So we're only making this problem harder for all of us if we don't do everything we can this decade. Um, and those are the kind of numbers. So I think we've, we've had a misunderstanding. It's not really about zero by 2050, it's really about what happens in the 2030s. Now, the point that Tristan makes there about the carbon pricing ending up at around 20 to $30 if we don't get it right is a very important one. When Maersk's chief executive of Fleet and Strategic Brands, Henrietta Thijkson, stressed the need for a carbon price to senior ministers while she was at COP27, she was talking about a global carbon price of at least $150 per tonne of CO2 emitted. And she was talking about that being set by measures based on life cycle analysis covering a full well-to-wake approach. There are other industry voices out there arguing that this figure, in fact, needs to be well north of $200. 20 to $30 is not going to cut it. The business case required by industry pushing for a carbon price to move ahead therefore requires the detail of the IMO's revision to include sufficiently robust targets, and not just for 2050, as Tristan points out, for 2030. So what are the chances that we're going to get that 1.5 aligned detail from the IMO? Hmm. Well, here's Faig Abzov, uh, Shipping Programme Director at the non-governmental organisation Transport and Environment. Let me put it this way. There is zero chance that the IMO adopts a new revised strategy that's compatible with 1.5 degrees temperature goal. And let me clarify what I mean. 1.5 degrees temperature goal is not only about the end date of decarbonization, it's also about the shape of the curve. It's also about what you're going to do uh, by 2025, the question of peaking emissions, what you're going to do by 2030, 2040, and so on. There's zero chance for IMO to have a strategy that is compatible with that. 
That being said, it, there's a higher likelihood that the new target for 2050 will reflect somehow zero slash net zero um, a language along those lines. It's a space that we need to really, really watch um, because what we need to have at the very least is zero on a life cycle basis. That we are not shifting emissions from vessels to land. Secondly, we do not put net in there, meaning that all the emission reductions should take place in sector. That we're not offsetting emissions out of sector, and that's a problem with the aviation, among other other others. And that um, in addition to 2050, we have targets along the way. We need to revise 2030 in absolute terms, and we need to have a new 2040 target. And that is um, a big question, how much IMO will be able to progress on that. And I think um, December in, uh, um, intersessional as well as MEPC 79 will be um, um, good litmus, lit litmus test to see, you know, um, how close the positions of member states are, or how far the positions of member states are, whether this um, can be feasible um, to be adopted next year or not. Okay, so what happens if we don't get the agreements? Well, the thing I would point out, and this is a fact that is well understood by all those attending the IMO, the IMO is not operating in isolation. The EU is moving ahead with regional regulation next year, whether they like it or not. And there is a scenario where if the IMO doesn't move ahead with sufficient detail, that it will simply cease to become relevant. Transport and Environment's deliberately provocative report released during COP pointed out that 84% of ship calls are made in the European Union, the US and China. And if we thought about linking their decarbonisation efforts on a regional basis, that alone would have a much greater effect than the IMO rules. We believe that ideally having a single global regulation, global rules would be we would better serve the industry um, and ultimately that would be desirable. But having participated in the IMO negotiations over a decade, you know, six years myself and before me, my colleagues, my predecessors, we've come to conclusion that that body, that UN body is not capable of adopting rules that are technology transforming. The key word is technology transforming. Uh, for that reason, we have been looking for alternative ways of doing it. And um, EU 5455 is the brainchild of that, you know, that that search. Um, three years ago, everybody told us that, you know, Europe will never regulate international shipping. Now we show that they can do it. But if you look beyond, it's not just EU. 5455 will apply in Norway, in Iceland. They are not members of the European Union but because of the legal arrangement, the kind of they automatically get included. If we look beyond, we see already, we already have MRV in China, a regional, a national MRV that covers international shipping. And that was designed in the image of the European MRV. Now we have a proposal in the US Senate to have a fuel standard on, on, on vessels that collect US ports. Obviously the, those um, projects are at their infancy. But this shows that many people think like we do, and that given the climate change science, 
constantly telling us we don't have time to waste. We need to look at every single possibility, every single fora. Uh, we, the study we publish is trying to um, give teeth, which is trying to give confidence to those nations um, that they do have a lot of power. That 84% of ships call it Europe, US, China. That means that if those three economies implement technology driving regulations, and that leads to onboard technology change in vessels, that is more than enough to cover the supermajority of the global fleet. You don't need 190 countries to sign up to it. Three economies can have big decisions with a big um, knock-on effects. We truly believe that not only this is possible, but this is necessary. That uh, we, we no longer have time to to search for a perfect solution because perfect solution will never be there it doesn't exist in any sector i don't see any reason why imo should be an exception so there you have it all eyes are now on the imo which as i have pointed out many times before is nothing more than the collective will of its 175 member state governments we are relying on them to translate some of the fine rhetoric we saw on display in egypt into real action when they arrive in London next month. We will, of course, be there to cover it all, so tune in for some top-quality IMO bothering next month. Uh, and if there are any representatives of our favourite IMO member states listening, I know you are, the ones who routinely raise concerns about the scrutiny and detail of our coverage and the publicity we give it on social media, don't worry, I can give you my personal assurance as editor that I will be directing all my efforts into ensuring that your every move is examined and investigated in forensic detail. You're welcome, Saudi Arabia and Russia. We look forward to seeing you there. For now, though, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, hopefully sounding a little less croaky. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.